everybody, this is Charles Hain. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of July. Holy, holy cow, is it like July 13th this week already? I, I'm yeah. flabbergasted. I'm coming from Maine, which is why it might sound different than normal, but I'm Charles Hain, tech writer for No Film School. I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School. So we got a couple of fun stories this week. We're going to be talking about Apple changing their, their laptop lineup. We're going to be talking about... Uh, new firmware update from Panasonic and what it means for you. We're going to be talking about the John Wick timeline. And then we've got all that. We've got tech news. We've got an Ask No Film School. All that and more in the No Film School podcast this week. See you after the break. This podcast has been brought to you by Shotlister, the only professional shot listing and scheduling app. Go to www.shotlister.com to learn more. So the first story we're going to talk about this week is actually kind of an interesting story because it is one of those interesting tech meets. Look, you can't be on the internet and not talk about Keanu Reeves right now, right? So John Wick, the John Wick editor, shared the John Wick timeline of the Avid timeline, and it was actually a really big story on the site this week. And every couple of months or years, we share a timeline from some big movie where they are releasing the timeline and showing sort of a screenshot of what a feature timeline looks like. And they don't always do well, so we're going to give some of the credit here to Keanu Reeves. But it's also really interesting to do this fascinating thing which I have a lot of respect for, which is they don't just show the final cleaned up timeline. They show the assembly timeline and the final timeline. Just to give a little context, I feel like every time I hear John Wick timeline, there's a part of me that's thinking like, wait, is that like John Wick was born on X amount, Uh. X day? And he's like, so I just want to clarify for those, for many of you, obviously you understand as soon as Charles started talking about uh, Avid and you you know that we're talking about an editing timeline. We're not talking about the John Wick expanded universe timeline or the multiverse or whatever you might have been thinking. So continue. Um, Yeah, so it's the editing timeline. And in this case, there's the final timeline. And usually you don't finish a movie in Avid Media Composer. You edit in Media Composer or Premiere and Resolve or Final Cut 10. And, but mostly Media Composer, let's be real. And then you edit in Media Composer and then after that you hand it over to something like DaVinci Resolve for color and to... Pro Tools for Sound. So he shows us the handover timeline. But, you know, like if you're a screenwriter, there's always the shooting script. And then there's like the published script after effect. And the published script, it's all cleaned up and it looks like the final edit. And all the lines that didn't make it in get cut out and stuff like that. So sharing the like shooting script where all the scenes that got cut out are still in and all the dialogue is still before the actors have gotten hands on their stuff is always like a revealing moment. As a writer, you always want to read the shooting script. You don't want to necessarily read like the published script that's just a transcription of the final edit. And um, it's really nice they also showed shared the assembly timeline. And assembly is a much earlier step in the editing process. It's much looser. There's a lot more slack. And um, it tends to be sloppier. This editor is very organized. Even the assembly looks like a very neat, orderly timeline. But it is a nice thing that they share. It's also a really nice reminder that even a movie like John Wick, which is... um, And look, don't get me wrong. All four editing platforms are great. I love Resolve. I love Premiere. I love Final Cut. I don't know if I love Final Cut yet, but I'm getting to like (laughs) Final Cut 10. Um... And I like Pro's Raw a lot. And but even John Wick, younger filmmakers, younger team, hungry people doing this action movie, 
Still Catch Media Composer, Baby Driver, Still Catch Media Composer, and they released their timeline last year. Like, Media Composer is still so dominant in this space. And that wasn't actually something we talked a lot about in the story, but I think it's always a really nice reminder for people. It's funny, I'm teaching at Main Media Workshops this year, and someone was like, all right, man, the battle between Premiere and Resolve, which one wins if you're editing? And I was like, well, guys, you know, Media Composer still wins when you're editing. Um, why? And the reason you, why, yeah. well, look, I, I actually don't cut in Media Composer full-time because I end up doing color and sound and stuff on my own. So I usually cut in Resolve these days. I've sort of moved mostly over to that because I like having everything in one application. However, Is that kind of a big deal? Because like, I cause I feel like a lot of people cut in Premiere, but more and more every day. I feel like we've talked about this before also, so forgive me. But I feel like yeah. more and more we talk, people, people are switching to Resolve because of the all-in-one factor, right? Yeah, the all-in-one factor is huge. However, the all-in-one factor is not a big deal if you're a big Hollywood studio feature. Because if you're a big Hollywood studio feature, you're going to cut for a year. And then you're going to hand over to Pro Tools and Resolve. That's going to take a day or two. You're going to pay people to do it. Maybe it's going to take a week to do all of those handovers. You have the budget to do it. So that's not a huge pain point. The handover is a really big pain point for small operators. If you're doing two or three short films a month or two or three music videos a month or two or three commercials a month, doing all those handovers is super annoying. And then if you do those handovers and then you get new edit notes and you have to reconform because you change your picture and then you got to go into color and conform again, that's where it's really painful. That's the market where doing it all in one makes the most sense. If you're a big studio feature or a big TV show, that's actually not a huge pain point for you. You're you're not dealing with this big nightmare and you've already fixed that pain point. You know how to work around it. So all the benefits of Media Composer, which is 12 editors working on the same pool of media at the same time with no pain, a, a rock steady workflow with very few bugs that's very stable and super reliable. Um, like I did a review last week of Dish.tc, which is the timecode sync tool, you know, and they put in audio, they put in timecode through audio linear timecode, which is a very common format. Premiere doesn't even support it at all. Resolve supports it, but only on picture, not on sound. And Media Composer just supports it. And there's lots of things where Media Composer just supports it. Like, all of the things that you want it to do, it does. It just does all of these little things really nicely. Hmm. The problem Media Composer has is that it's a little harder to learn. It, there's a little bit of an uphill battle there. They're working really hard on that, and they're very aggressive on that. But, like, at the top end, when you, if you are an editor who's like, I would like to someday cut studio movies – you should be media composer should be in your tool set. I think if you're a 21 year old editor, all four of the major editors should be in your tool set because I think you need to be ready to work wherever. Hmm. Um, and obviously, I've moved all my editing over to Resolve because I am in that place where I want to be able to color it and then go back and change picture and then go back and change color and ch go back and change picture. I like that. But I'm a small team, I'm seldom working with five people on the same media at the same time. You're not five um, people. You're one person. I am not five people. Although but you're on I a treadmill. We know that. We are. I am on a treadmill. I did have an edit session this winter where my baby was sitting next to me. So we had two people <laughs> and my baby. We would try and base like what my six-month-old baby did as like feedback on different edit decisions. So we'd watch an edit and then if my baby would like drool, we'd be like, yep, that edit was good. So we were you using to... their sort of like an I Ching editing uh, executive producer process. Yes. It was pretty cute. Shh. You should give her final cut. The uh, the thing the thing that I, one of the things that jumped out at me looking at this um, was just the assembly timeline says February twenty second, twenty sixteen. Picture lock December 9th, twenty sixteen. It's pretty fast, I just looked, actually. 
Yeah, just like still, it's just like, wow, you know, and of course it is because it's John Wick, you know, I, like you said, yeah, it's pretty fast, but it's still like, it kind of takes you a minute to think about, you know, that 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 much time um, yeah. is just between an assembly and picture lock. On a and then like someone this. was sitting there for 40 hours to 50 hours a week, every week working full time on making that edit as good as it could be for that seven month period is a lot of time to be spending on that software platform. Getting notes. Um, yes. Sometimes notes that they're hard to listen to and hard to adjust. And, yes. and, and then, and it also is a reminder, I think, you know, when you take a more holistic approach to the whole process and you realize that, you know, Keanu Reeves shows up again when it's time to, to promote the movie. And this is a thing he did a long time ago that a lot of people have been working on that he may have not even thought about or seen anything from. You know what I mean? It's just a reminder. I know I know most of us know these things, but that's still it's yeah. fascinating to me to consider how much time the thing is just baking in the oven. All right, next story up this week, Panasonic has announced a really big firmware update for all of their Lumix mirrorless cameras. So if you don't remember the Panasonic Lumix line, I know there's a lot of mirrorless cameras to keep track of these days. So Panasonic Lumix first made news with the GH line, the GH3, the GH4, the GH5, eventually the GH5S. And these are cameras, pretty small sensor, like micro four-thirds lens mount, which is a common lens mount. One of the things we like about Panasonic is they tend to use these open formats. A lot of manufacturers, they use their own formats. Panasonic tends to work with other people on an open format. So they use the MFT sensor, the MFT sensor size, pretty small sensor size. And these cameras were super popular in dock. They were super popular a little bit in narrative. Um, and they were really popular for a bunch of different reasons. One, the price point, 1500 bucks, couldn't be beat, right? Half of the Sony pricing. Um, but then also you're getting a whole lot of features where they're doing the marquee feature first. So you're seeing 10-bit internal recording first out of Panasonic. You're seeing H.265, which gives you the same image quality for half the file size out of Panasonic. So you're seeing a lot of the features you're looking for out of Panasonic faster. But what's interesting is Panasonic was sort of last out of the gate with a full-frame mirrorless camera. It wasn't until February of this year that they came out with the S1, and then it was Cinegear this year. I think, George, you were in the room when they announced the S1R, which is their new um, cinema-focused mirrorless camera. So these are a larger sensor size, right? The original GH5, much smaller sensor size, MFT-sized micro four-thirds. But now they're going full-frame mirrorless. They're competing head-to-head -head against Canon EOS R and Nikon and the Nikon Z line and obviously the real dominant force here, Sony, with the Alpha 7. Like the A7S2 was such a huge hit with filmmakers. <laughs> is the Black Magic one not a full? Yeah, it is, right? No, the Black Magic Pocket is actually MFT. It's the same size as the GH5. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Although that camera is also a huge hit. People cannot keep that camera on shelves. It is everywhere. So, I mean, I don't want to get into a whole side thing of talking about all the different mirrorless cameras. That could be like many podcasts unto itself probably. But I did just want to say, where do you sort of like slot this in in terms of like who's – Who's this one for? You mentioned docs, but like compared to, uh, I think these all kind of speak to different demographics of buyers and users. Am I wrong about that? Maybe well, this I mean, one... the problem is, is that they're starting, they're starting to speak to the same demographics of buyers and users. And like, it was easier to differentiate earlier, but now they're all sort of trying to make this do everything camera that can be like, oh, you can do your narrative project on it and it'll be great on a doc and it'll be great on this. 
And so it's sort of an interesting arena. Like, I can clearly say that the, the thing that's making the Black Magic Pocket so popular is that for $1,500, you're getting raw. And that's very exciting for people because raw recording is great. It opens up a lot of flexibility in post. And that price point, we've never seen any camera that shoots raw at that price point before. But then the camera in some ways, I love that camera. I'm actually thinking about picking up one of those cameras in, in addition to some other things. But the frustrating thing about that camera is there's no internal image stabilization. Right, hmm. And that makes it not great as a handheld camera. You can put that Blackmagic camera on a gimbal like a Ronin-S or a Moza Air 2 or something like that, and it'll stabilize, and you'll get a nice image out of it, and it'll be smooth. But purely handheld, it doesn't weigh very much. It's not like a big shoulder-mounted Ursa. And those light cameras, you need some sort of image stabilization to balance out the lightness. The Panasonic GH5 had really good image stabilization. I personally love the image stabilization on the Fuji X-H1, but I know... I know the X-H1 was not the hit Fuji wanted it to be, but I'm a fan. But Panasonic has always been really good at image stabilization, and the G and the S1 and the S1R have image stabilization, and that circles us back around to this firmware update, which bumps up the in-body image stabilization by a, st a half a stop, and then it bumps up another half stop of image stabilization for uh, compatible image stabilized lenses. And this is actually, I think, where Panasonic is trying to live. They're trying to say, all right, we're going to give you this camera. It's going to have this full-frame sensor, and the thing that's going to put us ahead of the pack is amazing image stabilization. You're going to be out there. You're going to be shooting handheld because a lot of times on these little cameras, we are shooting handheld. And because the camera's light, we're going to need to make sure that the image stabilization is really solid to make up for all those little micro-movements that can make for a very shaky camera image. So this firmware is, update, I think, is part of that. Is it recording raw? So you cannot right now do internal raw on any of these cameras except for the Blackmagic Pocket. Uh, so the Blackmagic still keeps its... But the Blackmagic Pocket has one fatal flaw, which is that the battery life is just abysmal. You just hmm. die on batteries. You eat through them so fast because it's a really powerful camera. So they sure. came out with a battery adapter at NAB this year where you can have three batteries instead of one and there's external power and there's a power input, which you often don't see on these cameras. Like Blackmagic... The, the place it wins is it gives you all the connectors. You have a mini XLR and you have a power input and you have all the – and a USB connector. You get the connectors. You can power it other ways. But if you want to go out and just use the onboard battery, that battery dies really fast. It is very battery so hungry. These cameras – And because of the stabilization issue, it's not going to be your choice if you're just running around with a battery out. strapped to – Exactly. Yeah. But, um, you know, I don't actually remember if you can get RAW out of the S1 and the S1R yet. I think RAW is coming with a future upgrade, and it'll be RAW out. In fact, I do remember it is not out yet. Right now, all of these cameras are HDMI. None of them have an SDI. And the only camera I know of that does HDMI RAW is the Nikon Z line, which for some reason, and I, I fully have to admit, I, I need to go like – do a review and play with it or something. I don't know why the Nikon Z line isn't a bigger hit because on paper it looks amazing. I need to go shoot with it to find out why. But it will give you raw over HDMI, but then you need a raw recorder like an Atomos Inferno or something like that, which is, you know, another grand. So you pay three grand for a camera body and a grand for a recorder to get raw. That is not comparable to the $1,300 raw camera that is the Blackmagic Pocket. However, RAW is not the be-all, end-all. It is useful in a lot of situations, but really good image stabilization, really good low light, really good battery life. I think the S1 and the S1R are really going to appeal, the same way the GH5 did, to a lot of run-and-gun dock filmmakers in a way that the Blackmagic Pocket might not. Hmm. Because on a dock, it's more important that you get the shot. 
And if maybe the white balance is a little off and maybe you can't make it look perfectly in post because you shot internally and you didn't shoot raw, but you got it, you captured the moment, you were there and it was smooth even though the shot was handheld and your battery survived, that's more important to you. I think that these cameras are more going to target into that universe. Where I think it. what you're going to see more out of the Blackmagic Pocket is you're going to see filmmakers who are like, I'm going to go out and I'm doing a music video or I'm doing a commercial where I can keep four batteries charged up on the wall and I have a Ronin S or a Moza R2 or something like that so I can stabilize the shots when the camera is moving and I want that raw image quality so I have all that flexibility I want in post. I think that's sort of how those are segmenting at the moment. The lead in some ways on this was like, this may be your new go-to mirrorless for for docs and reality. Yeah. Yeah, and these cameras have been out for a minute, but it's nice to see that the firmware upgrades are continuing to focus on improving image stabilization. That image stabilization isn't just a feature that like, they built and they released and it's fine. They're continuing to work on refining it. And they're refining it both in the lenses and in the sensor. So you have in-sensor image stabilization, in-body, IBIS, and you have in-lens. And they can work together if you're using uh, things that are all part of the same system. The Fuji does this as well. They can work together to create these incredibly stabilized shots. Now, this isn't the same as, like, Steadicam stabilization. But sure. it really does. If you know, I wandered around Brooklyn one day with a you know 138 millimeter lens on my XH1, shooting everything handheld, just whipping around the kind of stuff that would be nauseating footage on <laughs> an unstabilized camera, and it really smooths out a lot of that for you in a way that's really super useful. And I think we're going to see a lot of that out of the S1R um, as we start to see more of those lenses and cameras starting to hit the street. And that's what makes this firmware update news is that they're continuing to push themselves on that. Um, Next up, uh, and this is sort of tech-heavy headlines, but this is not really a pure tech headline, and we do have tech news coming up. Apple finally got rid of the MacBook. Now, for those of you who are momentarily thinking, but wait a minute, They're not going to kill all of their laptops. Apple did this weird thing where they had the MacBook Pro and the MacBook Air. And we might have forgotten about it because it's been four years since it came out and two years since they've updated it. They had a laptop that was just called the MacBook. And, like, there was no Air or Pro on the end of it, which I find very confusing because many people will call their MacBook Pro a MacBook. It was super-duper light. It was actually the laptop many people... Many people remember the MacBook as being the, the laptop that gave us the beloved or actually deeply hated butterfly keyboard. So they have finally gotten rid of the MacBook. This actually makes a lot of sense because the MacBook makes no sense. Um, the MacBook Air is almost as light, but is way more powerful. And so, like, there's very little argument to be made for buying a MacBook when you could just buy a MacBook Air. You know, the cheapest MacBook Air is $1,099, which for Apple is a very affordable laptop, although you can't really edit video on a MacBook Air. It doesn't have the GPU power for it. And so, you know, I think for the price of a MacBook, you could bump up to a 13-inch MacBook Pro for another 100 bucks, And the MacBook Pro was also getting super light. So it was just a laptop that, like, didn't make a lot of sense. And honestly, I'm really excited about this news for a big reason, which is Apple, for the first time that I can think of, Now, as of today, the lightest laptop in their lineup is not as light as it was a a month ago. A month ago, you could buy something lighter, and they dropped the lightest thing. And this, for me, is the news in this. Because I think lightness is good to a point, but I want other things than lightness from my machines. 
And this is actually sort of a nice thing where they're like, oh, the air is light enough. And now we are going to give you more power in the air with new generations and not obsess so much about shaving more weight out of every generation. You would rather have a little more power. I used to have an air, and it was great, except every time you watch Netflix, all the fans had to come on. And you were like, well, I should really be able to have a laptop that can at least watch Netflix without the fans coming on, right? Hmm. So that is the kind of thing that we're starting to see. I hear the new airs are much more powerful, and you can watch video on them. You can't edit video. Don't try and edit video on an air. Come on. But you can certainly watch video on an air now without having problems, without it struggling. And I'm, I actually have to say, you know, I really like this news. I'm glad they've dropped the MacBook. I think it's really good. I wish that the next generation MacBook Pro would be a little thicker, get rid of the keyboard, and give me an SD card slot. And I'm going to say that every week on the podcast in the hope that Apple will eventually hear me say it. But that is uh, what about that's the, touch the big bar? news. Apple. Uh, that is actually the bad news this week. So the 13-inch MacBook Pro used to be the last MacBook you could still buy without a touch bar, and they added a touch bar to it. So there, you can now not buy a Mac without a touch bar. As much as we all keep dreaming for the touch bar to go away, it seems like the touch bar is here to stay. It is so mm. pointless. Um, maybe they'll make it better. Maybe they'll give real multi-touch to it. Maybe we'll actually see some, like, real improvements where I can, like, control two different things at the same time with two different figures in a dynamic way. But, like, I don't want to look down at my keyboard. I want to look up at my screen. Give me tactile buttons. Just give me my function keys back. Literally, let me pay an extra $100 to have a function key on my MacBook Pro, and I would pay an extra $100 on my next MacBook Pro to have function keys back. I'm not even kidding. All right. After the break, I will be back with tech news. This episode is brought to you by Shotlister, the only professional shot listing and scheduling app. Paper shot lists suck. When something inevitably goes wrong on set, you're left to scribble all over your perfect plan, guessing if you'll be able to make your day. But with the Shotlister, you can schedule your film on a shot-by-shot and minute-by-minute basis. Then when things change on set, you can simply update the shooting schedule on the app and Shotlister automatically does the math for you so you know exactly how you're doing. And its crew sync feature means you can keep the whole crew up to date. Shotlister is designed by filmmakers for filmmakers and is available on macOS, iOS, and Android. Check it out at shotlister.com. As a special bonus for listening to the No Film School podcast, Shotlister is giving away 50 free downloads every month. Just email nofilmschool at shotlister.com for your free copy. All right, everybody. So we've got one piece of tech news coming up this week, and it's actually kind of a fun one. So... Moment, you guys all know Moment. We've covered Moment a lot. Moment makes a um, camera app for your phone. They also make lens adapters for your phone, including an anamorphic adapter. And they've decided, and they've released it. It's out on a Kickstarter now, but Moment are pretty reliable, and I'm pretty confident this will leave Kickstarter successfully. They decided to do an anamorphic lens for the Mavic 2 DJI drone. They actually, they're a little weird in their press release where they're like, an anamorphic lens for a, a Mavic 2 or other drones. It's for the Mavic 2. Uh, you, they've done all their testing on the Mavic 2. All the press photos are on the Mavic 2. You almost definitely only want to mount this to the Mavic 2. And here's the reason why. The reason why this is so impressive is because unlike a bigger camera like the, the $3,000 Inspire or a big camera like a Matrix, the Mavic 2 is not like an interchangeable lens camera. And with a drone, adding things when they weren't designed to be added is really tricky. 
Drones are very precisely engineered objects. You've got that little camera hanging underneath, and there's a three-axis stabilizer holding that camera in place that's like constantly moving to compensate for any wind or vibrations from the uh, drone blades or anything like that. So adding an adapter to a drone is a big deal, right? Uh, DJI works super hard to make the interchangeable lenses for the Inspire, and they're all super light, but like there aren't interchangeable lenses for the Mavic. In the same way, you can send your Mavic in to switch it out, but that's a different story. So the fact that they built it for the Mavic 2 and they tested it for the Mavic 2 means I would only really feel safe recommending it for that. But they built an anamorphic adapter that straps onto the front. But here's the thing. If you put, if you front weight that camera, right, um, that's going to make the camera front heavy. And then the motors on the drone are going to have to work harder to keep the front of the camera upright. And that's going to burn through your batteries faster, which is going to make for faster shots. And they're going to be less stable because it's going to be harder to stabilize. So they built into the little clip that clips the anamorphic adapter onto the camera a counterweight that clips onto the back of the camera. And they managed to fit this all in without clipping any of the little arms or pieces of the drone that hold the camera together. So it's a really impressive uh, combination of like both lens and optical design, but also like material design that they're able to make this work. And then you're able to fly a 133 anamorphic on your Mavic 2 drone. In the launch video, they went to Iceland and there's all these beautiful shots with really creamy flares, or as they keep saying a lot of times, buttery, of those like anamorphic streak flares you want. But remember, anamorphic's not just about flare. Anamorphic's also about using more of the sensor. So if you want a 239 image, you can use all of the pixels in the sensor and get all that resolution, but in a 239 aspect ratio. So this is a pretty cool thing. I haven't had a chance to have hands-on time with it yet. I'm hoping to get hands-on time with it sometime this year. I've been emailing with the moment folks, and I think that might be able to uh, be something. I almost met up with them when they were here in June um, in New York. But I'm, I'm very curious about seeing this guy in person because I'm very impressed that with their ability to make an adapter for a drone because adding anything to a flying object is always a really tricky situation. And uh, they appear to have pulled it off. And that is tech news for this week. We have the post up about it now on No Film School. And it also looks like it's currently on Kickstarter, right? Yes. And it comes with the six filter set. Yes. Yes. Uh, there's a bundle and there's various prices. And, it, you know, it's it's a very cool looking, like it's unlike any anamorphic lens you're ever going to see. And it looks like it's both an adapter, but in the, it's also, it is an anamorphic lens. Yes. That you can pop on there. Yeah. Yep. It is but it's, it's very cool looking. I would I highly recommend going and just checking it out on the site and seeing it because it's like the engineering and design to get an anamorphic lens onto a drone. It's just different than what you expect. <laughs> so check it out. Um, all right. And then we have an Ask No Film School this week. Vahan Bedelian has asked what I thought was kind of an interesting question, and it was nice because I have an easy answer for it. Mr. Bedelian has asked, what is the best back pocket VFX software for indie filmmakers? I'm an indie filmmaker. I've been studying different VFX programs because I'd like to have it as a tool in my back pocket. I don't want a career in VFX, but I want some simple tricks I can do for myself for my own films. Stuff like uh, if I need to like matte paint some buildings or I want to like put a spaceship in, what's the best software to use? Uh, I've taken some tutorials on like 3ds Max and Maya and Nuke, but these seem like big rabbit holes that are always going to lead to like another tutorial that are suggesting I need to add like a different software like VBrush and I need to keep learning all these steps in the pipeline. 
what am I looking for to be able to add some basic 3D and VFX tools to my pipeline? Well, happily, I'm able to say I have the answer for you, and it is free, and it is Fusion. Um, so Fusion is now built into DaVinci Resolve. DaVinci Resolve is where I do all my editing. It's where I've done all my color grading for 11 years. Um, I'm obviously a big fan of DaVinci Resolve. I'm DaVinci Resolve certified. As much as I admit that Media Composer is probably still the better tool if you're going to cut a feature for a year, it is where a lot of work is going. And I just got Fusion certified last year. I just taught a little bit of Fusion this summer at Main Media Workshop. It was a Resolve class, so I did like a few hours on Fusion. And I have to say, it is very easy to learn. The basics are very um, easily laid out. Resolve has a bunch of free learning tools up on their website. Like they have a PDF you can download with sample footage where they walk you through workflows, where they walk you how to do a 3D tr camera track, and they show you how to do to like you've got a moving shot on a beach and you can put a pirate ship out in the water. Like they are doing a lot of those tutorials in the training because they want you to use it. However, you will never find one piece of software that does it all. Because like even Fusion, you can do your 3D tracking and you can do your compositing and you can do all of that. That pirate ship that you composite into the, that moving shot, as you see as an example, you're going to end up building that somewhere else. You're not usually going to want to build that in Fusion. You could, but it's not necessarily where you want to do that build. The same Why? Way would, it look, as, would it look weird? No, the tool set – no, you could do it, but the tool set isn't designed – the 3D building tools are much simpler. So you would have to – like in order to build something like a pi pirate ship – in full-on 3D infusion, it would take a tremendously long time in a way where there are other tools that are out I there see. to build it more quickly. That being said, you can also go on, what is it, TurboSquid, and you could buy a pre-built pirate ship 3D object for 20 bucks. You could go on TurboSquid and buy a pre-built spaceship for 50 bucks. You know, every time I've needed something built in 3D on a job, We'll always look at TurboSquid before we get builds from somebody to see if we're going to build it because half the time on TurboSquid, somebody has gone through the effort of building it and selling it as a shape. So you need the Manhattan Bridge, it's on TurboSquid. You need the Chrysler building, it's on TurboSquid, and then you just buy it from someone who built it, and then you can do all of the work in Fusion or you know After Effects or wherever you want to do your compositing. Even a lot of VFX artists don't spend a lot of time building their own 3D shapes. You buy a 3D shape and then you shade it and you uh, light it and you uh, composite it and you put it in the space. But building the shapes from scratch, that is usually a separate skill and often done in a separate program. Honestly, I actually don't know where a lot of these 3D shapes get built. Maybe they are all building them in Fusion and I don't know about it. But I actually think a lot of 3D shape building of the shape, there are better tools for building the shape. But for the kind of things you're describing, if you're happy buying the spaceship, you can totally composite that in, even in a moving shot, matte painting out buildings and stuff like that. All of that is super easy to do in Fusion. And it is free. Download Resolve. Fusion's built in. There's a lot of tutorials to learn it. And then it's like the perfect shot to have in your back pocket. Especially if you're already doing your color grade in Resolve, you can just switch a tab over and open it up in Fusion. And uh, it'll be there. So then all you need to buy is your pirate ship on TurboSquid. Exactly. You kind of got two answers for the price of one there. Yeah, I feel like I plugged right? TurboSquid heavily about Turbo there. Squid. I don't even know if TurboSquid <laughs> yeah. is still in business. I haven't looked on them in like two or three years. but It makes me think we need a post about TurboSquid. It does make me think that. It also makes me think, are there newer <laughs> online shopping centers for buying 3D shapes that we should know about? Hit me up on Twitter at Charles Hain. If, I'm, if people are like, TurboSquid, what is this, 2009? You need to be buying from, <laughs> you know, whatever the new place people buy 3D shapes from is 
Um, or maybe it's still Turbo Squid. Turbo Octopus. Turbo Octopus. Or uh, I can't even come up with a good one. I don't even have the brain power to make a good joke, which is the probably the <laughs> best time to wrap the podcast. <laughs> So thank you, everybody. Um, Ask No Film School, we often find them on the boards. You can also email ask at nofilmschool.com if you've got questions. You can always find out more about all the stuff we talked about on nofilmschool.com where we have articles about this and articles about all sorts of other stuff. Um, if you have stuff we want to, you want us to cover, you can email us. And uh, you can always find me on Twitter at Charles Hain. And if you like my tech news stuff, I have another tech news podcast that's just 100% tech news end to end. That's The Week in Film Tech. Look it up wherever you subscribe to podcasts. And uh, yeah, at Charles Hain on Twitter. At George Edelman on Twitter. And remember, if you ever have any questions or tips or anything, you can email us at ask at nofilmschool.com. All right. Very cool. Well, we'll see you guys next week. Have a good one. Adios.